Uh, my father was a Conservative, uh, my mother voted Labour, so I suppose by rights I should be a Liberal Democrat. Uh, but in actual fact, I'm a Nazi. <laughs> Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is The Fellow Show. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is the podcast where you'll hear about blockchain, cryptocurrency, emerging markets, and future tech in relatively plain English. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching The FOMO Show on your platform of choice. So this episode, we're going to be talking about, we're going to be going through a bunch of news that's happened in the last couple of weeks. We're also going to cover um, a little update about EOS, the uh, smart contracts platform that's, isn't it June the 1st when it's launching? Yeah, yeah, it's due um, in less than a month. So we're just going to cover basically everything EOS just to, for those of you that are into it to catch up and those of you who aren't into it too, just to catch up on what's going on and also give a little bit of a public service announcement. Um, we're, we're also going to do a feature on how do we scale this thing? So... A lot of the narrative around blockchain just recently as we start looking at enterprise adoption has been about how do we scale this? How do we make it so that it, it can rival the internet? So we're going to go into that and a lot of the different strategies to scale the blockchain. Awesome, awesome. And that's it, pretty much. What have you been up to this week, mate? You've been coding smart contracts, haven't you? Yeah, I have. <laughs> um, I'm giving a talk, uh, a workshop in less than, no, a little bit over a week now. And it's on uh, blockchain and smart contracts and how that relates to business. So I've been uh, essentially researching a lot of the practical elements of smart contracts and working out exact, exactly how they deploy on the blockchain and mainly Ethereum at the moment. Uh, but I'm kind of keeping track of EOS and I'm hoping to... To have a look at that soon too but then how how is your smart contract practical stuff coming <laughs> on oh mate it's a mess it's a mess <laughs> um like it, it's it's going okay now like it's it's going a lot better now but just getting everything set up i mean mm. i would have thought you know you would have thought coming into something as big as ethereum that there'd just be so a lot of documentation out there it'd be pretty easy to do um but even just getting my development environment set up on my computer so essentially for those of you guys that have never done anything like that setting up all the different programs and uh utilities on the back end was just tough man and like i did it on two different operating systems as well so right. i tried on linux first which is meant to be really friendly for developers and uh it was a bit of a nightmare and then i tried on windows and finally got it working so uh, yeah, look, it's it's getting there now, but I feel like there was a good day or two of my, spinning my wheels before I really got to the point where everything was set up and I could deploy a smart contract. And, uh, but it's been really interesting. Like, there's a there's just so much to learn. Like, that's I think the more you're in the blockchain space and the more you're um, you're you're kind of digging into it, like we do here on the podcast, you just realise how little you know, you know, and how quick mm -hmm. everything's moving. And there's so many different parts of uh of the space that are just moving in all sorts of different directions and um yeah preparing a whole day workshop on this stuff has definitely been a, a bit of an eye-opener um because a part of you's like i there's i've got to talk for a whole day how am i going to talk for a whole day and then a part of you's like there's so much stuff to fit into this and how am i going to fit it all in you know Jeez. so yeah um what day is the talk uh, first one's on the 15th of May, uh, that's in, here in Brisbane, and then there's one on the 24th of May, I think, and that's in Melbourne, um, and uh, 
Yeah, look, that 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 content will go up on the BlockSense website uh, after the talks have been done. So we'll um, we'll turn it into a bit of a webinar and and people can go check that out there. So, excellent, excellent. Yeah. That's great news. Hey, what well, have you been up to? Well, um, what have I been up to? Not a lot, really, to be honest. Um, oh, was- you were out in the country, weren't you? For Oh yeah, that yeah. was last episode, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I went down to went down to New South Wales, had a great time there. Threw the tennis ball for the dogs. Um, generally, just had a good time. Took them, took the dogs for walks, and that was basically. Oh, and I saw my parents as well. That was lovely. But yeah, <laughs> um, that was it really. Uh, other news is we shifted the FOMO show to uh, Telegram. Mm. So if you haven't used Telegram before, it is a, a fascinating little um, app which lets you. It's very much like WhatsApp. You can record audio messages and mm. video messages, send attachments, and generally just GIFs and things like that. So lots, lots of stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, it's much more user friendly than Slack is. So yeah. hopefully, um, that should be a good platform for us to shift to. Yeah, yeah. So if you're looking for somewhere that's uh, reasonably easy to get on, and um, we're a lot more active on Telegram normally than we are in Slack, just because that's where most of uh, the groups that we participate in are. So yeah, if you're looking for another channel to jump in and have a chat about the kind of stuff we chat about on the show or to send funny gifts or whatever you want to do, um, check out FOMO.show slash Telegram. Yeah, so we'll be um, gradually shifting off Slack and moving on to Telegram. Um, So, yeah, lots to look forward to. Please do feel free to join us there. Cool. Just as a bit of disclosure, um, this is not investment advice, is it? I hope not. Actually, no, it's not investment or any other type of advice. No, no, it's not. Look, new cryptocurrencies are popping up every day. There's a lot going on in the blockchain. It's hard to know which ones are legitimate and which aren't. We're not saying you should buy anything at all. We are both personally invested in different cryptocurrencies, some of which we do talk about on this show. Uh, But just because we talk about a project does not mean you should buy it. So, uh, do your research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and avoid the fear of missing out. If you're new around here and new to crypto, check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues on till around about episode eight. Mm. It'll give you some groundings in the fundamentals and help you understand what on earth we're talking about. So, yeah, go check that out if, you, if, you, if you're new to this whole space. We try and keep things as, as uh, simple as we possibly can, but there's just a lot of ground that we'd need to recover if we were going to do it every episode. Mm. So, mm. go check that out. Um, and you'll also get a little bit of an idea about some of the... Uh, the characters we have on this show and, and their backstory. <laughs> Wherever you're joining us from, um, it's a pleasure having you here. Why not drop into our Telegram channel to say hello at fomo.show slash Telegram. We've also uh, recently been in touch with a guy called Darren here in Australia who's looking to set up a network for developers and aspiring developers who've got an interest in the EOS platform, which we mentioned earlier is launching uh in a month's time. We'll put the link to that Telegram in the show notes. So if you're a developer uh, or an aspiring developer, either here in Australia or somewhere nearby, um, head to that link and uh, just say good day. I think he's planning on beginning a uh, like an open source project that a lot of Australian developers can cut their teeth on and maybe participate in the hackathon that's coming up in August for EOS. So uh, yeah, go check that out. And if you'd like to be a part of the show, why not send us a voice recording? You can actually record that directly into Telegram within Mm. the app. Press and hold the microphone icon and it'll just record as long as you're speaking. Then let go and it'll send it to us. So um, do feel free to send send your um, recordings in that way and we'll pop you in the show. Cool. 
So, mate, what's going on in the news this week? Mate, first bit of interesting news is Goldman Sachs uh, looking to trade Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures um, within weeks, which is kind of an exciting bit of news. That's mm. um, Wall Street's investment bank, known as the... Uh, the, the Bank of the People, they've now decided that it's not a fraud uh, and they're actually going to jump in on the old uh, cryptocurrency markets. Wow, that's a bit of an about face. Yeah, it's an exciting piece of news anyway. To add to that, there's another interesting bit. The billionaire Peter Thiel, who's one of the PayPal founders and an early investor in Facebook, yep. he's invested in a startup to optimize block trading for cryptocurrency. So um, block trading is basically where when big institutions or organizations make uh, want to make a big trade of like $200 million worth of an asset, yep. if you just buy it, via the regular market, the price would shift way too fast if you're putting in, you know, $2 million worth of orders. Mm. Um, you know, that you'd watch the price shift very quickly, which yep. would mean that you don't actually get a great price for half your trades. Yeah. Block trading, which is which happens on regular stock exchanges, that's basically where it splits, it routes your order via a bunch of different exchanges and makes the purchase all at sort of the same sort of time. Mm. And it also does it in like off-exchange pools, like private pools of people who own stuff and right. deals that are arranged outside of the official markets yep. so that people can lock in deals at and a make, certain price yeah, yeah okay. so it's it's like it's it uses very smart routing to basically execute big orders okay. at specific times so peter teal's jumped in on that goldman sachs are jumping in, in the next couple of weeks it's a really exciting time to be in like just to see what's going on yeah yeah, so that, that, that's that's that really. Institutional investors are really starting to to come into this. Then, by the looks of it, they're yep. making a, a good start on it. So, yeah, yeah. And the company's called Tagomi, but yeah, check out the links in the in the show notes. But really interesting stuff. So the next bit of news: the International Standards Organization has uh, blocked two new encryption systems developed by the NSA for. IoT devices, so for Internet of Things devices. So, what happened with this one, Joe? Yeah, so um, basically, the organization just formally rejected this pair of techniques, which had been developed by the NSA. Um, now, there were concerns that there was going to be a, that there was a backdoor built in mm. um, that would allow the US spies to break the encryption. This is coming from the register. Um, but while no one's actually directly accused them of inserting backdoors, what they said was that there was a lot of um, controversy when they were asking really basic questions about the security that should have been answered and there were a lot of the NSA sort of refused to give direct answers to technical questions and just went to attack the people who were questioning so they just rejected these two standards so that was kind of interesting kind of so, random so the NSA essentially came to the ISO and said uh, we've invented these these new standards secure encryption yep standards. you should just make them standards and everyone needs to use them. everyone should use these standards and then when the ISO said, okay, well, a lot of people come to us with different standards. Why should we use yours? The NSA essentially said, well, why should we use yours? Mm. It would be a shame if your wife were to be in an accident. <laughs> <laughs> and then the ISO were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't have a wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm single. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, that was, that was an exciting little bit. Oh, mate. How do they think this is still going to work you know these days because i mean these standards like the international standards organization is probably one of from a developer's perspective um they have one of the, the biggest amount of influences with developers because they standardize the way that everyone does things on the internet so uh, it just kind of boggles my mind that the nsa could think that they could just come in and say 
we've got this new thing and you need to use it. Well, you've got to give them credit for trying, really, yeah. don't you? I mean, like, you know, there's nothing quite like the uh, the threat of, you know, there's, there's nothing. Yeah, you've got it's you got to just do do mafia tactics mm. or yeah, threaten to break a few legs. We were watching a video earlier from uh, our own prime minister here in Australia, yeah. weren't we? About which got circulated like a, a, a year ago. Um, let's play that clip. Uh, the laws of mathematics are, are uh, very commendable, but the only law that applies in Australia is the law of Australia. My favourite part is where he says, essentially, it's all well and good. There's mathematical laws, but Australian laws are the only ones that apply in Australia. You could go out into the middle of space and find that the laws of Australia still apply. <laughs> So this next one, mate, it's kind of in a similar vein. Uh, millions of hotel door locks worldwide were uh, discovered to be vulnerable to a master key hack. Yeah, so these researchers um, say the flaws were found in the software, um, which meant they, that an attacker could create a master key that opened the rooms without leaving an activity log. So, um, yeah, the manufacturer is actually playing down the risk, apparently. Um, these locks are used by some of the world's biggest hotel chains, mm. Intercontinental, Hyatt, um, Radisson, Sheraton. One or two door locks around the world might be still be vulnerable to this. So, yeah, kind of interesting to watch. Yeah. Like, it does become quite important to have a track of who's mm. been in the room mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to make sure that only the people that need, like, need to be in the room should be in the room. Because, you know, if you've got a key and... You know, someone busts into your room and finds a whole bunch of stuff that you're probably not meant to have and you get blamed for it. That's the way that the police will say, well, you were the only person with the key to the room. You were in the hotel. Mm. But if it turns out that there's vulnerabilities for all these rooms, then... Yeah, yikes. Keep keep an eye on your security. Mate, this is really interesting, this one. So, the Philippines has created a special economic zone for cryptocurrency operators. And um, the uh, an article from Reuters talks about it and says, the Philippines will allow 10 blockchain and virtual currency companies to operate in an economic zone to take advantage of tax perks while generating employment, a government official said on Wednesday. And he said, we're about to license 10 platforms for cryptocurrency exchanges. They're Japanese, Hong Kong, Malaysians, Koreans. And uh, they said they can go into cryptocurrency mining, initial coin off- offerings, or they can go into exchanges, Lambino said. Um, so, it's a, it's a really positive sign, mate. And I've, I've actually heard, like, quite separately to this, that a lot of people have been focusing on the Philippines for uh, cryptocurrency development because mm. it is quite a lot cheaper, but there's a, there's a, a there's a really good caliber of developers there that are, mm-hmm. that are developing, uh, learning how to develop for blockchain. And the government also seems to be taking quite a liberal approach to it. Mm-hmm. So they've enlisted, um, they've, they've partnered up with Traders Holdings Incorporated, a, uh, a publicly listed Japanese company, and also um, a Makati-based fintech firm. So I think that's a Malaysian-based fintech firm. So basically to help create the regulatory authority and all the rules that are going to surround that sort of area. And if you Google the area where this is going to be in, um, I think they've called it Cagayan. Um, but yeah, this specific part of the world looks absolutely beautiful. Mm. So it should be a nice place to... Yeah, and they've got a, a wide um, bandwidth submarine cable um, that's going to be um, connected in there soon. So that's going to be a, a real sort of fintech hub yep. for the nation. It should be yep. really exciting to watch. Yeah, it's a real trend we're seeing, isn't it? That a lot of these smaller nations with, uh, especially the island ones, it seems a lot of island nations are really trying to position themselves to take advantage of the crypto boom. And you know, we saw it with Malta. We've seen it with Gibraltar as well. Um, I think there was a, 
there was one in the in Central America, uh, Puerto Rico maybe, or um, one of those Central American nations essentially was was is kind of vying to do the same thing as well to right. set themselves up to be as friendly in a regulatory sense as possible to attract all this business because. At the end of the day, this industry, it, it's it's built on fintech first. You know, I mean, the, the blockchain was first a financial innovation. It's still mainly a financial innovation. And that seems to be where all the money's pouring in. So, I, I love this. I love seeing that, you know, certain countries are waking up to the fact that they're better off riding the wave and not, you know, trying to stop the wave mm-hmm. and uh, making it as easy as possible for people to go in there and do what they need to do. Um and it also just comes back to the fact that, you know, as long as there's at least one of these places that let people essentially start what they want to start, it's going to be really difficult to fight it anyway. The moment people have got somewhere they can do it, they're going to do it. Um, so the the perspective of some of these governments to say, oh, we need to we need to really clamp down and make sure that people aren't doing this or people aren't doing that, uh, like what India is doing, for example, which is taking a really hard line on it. Um, it just seems so counterproductive because they're just going to go somewhere else and do it. And the Philippines could totally shape that to help themselves as well, yeah. like saying, oh, if you're going to hire you know, people to support, you know, you have to have people to give customer support, for example, mm. and they have to be you know, in the Philippines as well. Yep. Boom. Yep. Suddenly, there you go. Cool yep. choices. Anyway, one to watch. So, yeah, Philippines crypto district. <laughs> Cool. This is a really exciting one. Thanks to Carson, who we spoke to in our Game Coins episode. I think that was episode nine. Um, no, it wasn't episode nine, was it? Something like that. Um, ten. Yeah. Oh, it could have been. I think it was ten. Ten. Anyway. But yeah, thanks to Carson, who um, gave us a heads up on this one. Uh, he actually tested it out. It's basically the Binance Exchange is letting you sweep your crypto dust into their native BNB tokens. So crypto dust is just those... You know, uh, let's say there are 40 different currencies that you can buy on Binance. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes when you send to another wallet, you don't send all of your crypto mm. and you've got 0.001357 Bitcoins left or like or whatever it would be left. And Binance are basically saying if you've just got small amounts that you can't really do anything with and it's not really worth sending it anywhere, we'll let you just sweep that into a native BNB token. Mm. And that BNB token is doing pretty well. Like I, I jumped on that pretty early oh, yeah. when it, when Binance first came out because I went on the exchange and I was. And this is back when I was spending a lot more time on exchanges, um, and I went on the exchange and uh, and I was like, this is great. This is a really good exchange, and I liked a lot of the language they were coming out with, and so I bought some BNB, mm-hmm. and uh, it's gone up a long way <laughs> since I bought it, which has oh, been really good. Nice. Um, but yeah, essentially, for those of you who don't know, on Binance, the BNB allows you to use that to pay your transaction fees, and you essentially get a fifty percent discount on your transaction fees by paying it with their token, wow. as opposed to just paying it with you know whatever money, whatever cryptocurrency you're transferring out. Um, so yeah, like there's a lot of benefits for this because we've all done it. We've all logged in, and you see like all these other currencies you forgot you even had in the exchange, and there's a tiny little bit left. If you can pay your transaction fees with it instead, I think it's a it's a win win. That's a good move from them. Yeah. Yeah. Next piece. Did you hear that one hundred and fifty thousand US dollars worth of um, Ethereum or uh, tokens mm. were stolen from my Ether wallet users yeah. in a DNS hijack? Yeah, I saw that. So it said users of my Ether wallet, a web app for storing and sending Ether and Ethereum based tokens, experienced an attack on Tuesday that saw users of the service lose around one hundred fifty two thousand dollars worth of Ether. 
And the company alerted everyone quickly. They sent mm-hmm. out um, a tweet uh, at around 7.30 that morning of within 15 minutes from when the hack began. And I think they shut it down pretty quick mm-hmm. as well. But, uh, and look, $150,000 in the grand scheme of hacks isn't isn't actually a huge amount. Mm. But um, it could have been a lot worse. Did did you get a handle on how they said they did it? Yeah. So um, basically, they used a they uh, from what I gather is they convinced the DNS. uh, I think it was the Google public DNS server Mm. that um, DNS is basically it converts a server's IP address. Well, it converts the the name of a website that you go to the domain. So in our case, it'd be FOMO.show to the IP address of the server. So it's so you as a user don't have to remember IP addresses. You just type in a human readable word, and the DNS server routes that to correct to the correct server. Yeah. Now, in this case, they basically—I think it was the main official Google DNS. Those ones had the incorrect record, from what I gather. So it was for only a short while, but they basically routed all the traffic to an identical-looking site. If you looked at the green bar, the HTTPS certificate would not have worked. Yeah. Um, because they use extended validation, which has a full word mm. in the bar, and it would have been a different URL too, wouldn't it? It would have been the same. It would have same been the URL. correct URL, okay. but it would have the HTTPS would have most likely been broken. Okay, um, but yeah, kind of scary times. But mm. yeah, important to look out for the name of the company in the URL bar. Yeah, um, for them it would be like My Wallet Incorporated or something mm. like that. But there are a bunch of different domains that are spelt almost exactly like my ether wallet yeah so you've got a triple check when you're on that website that you're on the right website mm. bookmark it and make yep. sure you've got the right one bookmarked because it's very easy for a fraudulent website to take your information on that and yeah 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 you log in it sweeps all your money out take care out there mm. Um, so, mate, the next bit of news. This was uh, this was big. This was uh, this has been going on for a fair while. Telegram have been running their ICO. Well, they haven't been running their ICO. They've been running their private sale, mm. which is kind of like their pre-sale before they do the ICO, and it's only to the people that they want to allow to participate in it. So mm. it's essentially a lot of angel and private investors. And Telegram have actually decided to cancel their ICO, their public funding, mm-hmm. because they've made one point two billion. No, sorry. billion in their ICO. I'm not sure if that's enough, man. I'm not sure if that's enough to to make a a, uh, blockchain project. (laughs) 1.7 billion. Yeah. Don't you think they should have let it go for a little bit longer? It's ridiculous. So they were planning on building the Telegram Open Network, which was extending their messaging app to um, allow a range of services, including payments, file storage, sensor-proof browsing, decentralized apps hosted on their platform. So, yeah, they planned to raise 1.2, as you said, and then, um, yeah, they ended up raising 1.7, then they cancelled the public sale, so we can't get our hands on these tokens. Mm. This article is saying that it's probably because of the SEC's ICO probe, but, mm. yeah, it means that we won't be able to get their gram crypto token until it's on exchanges or, you know, any sort of timeline for being publicly released, but um, kind of exciting to see, and, you know, apparently some people are asking you know they bought it at 30 cents each and now they're hoping to sell it at one dollar thirty mm. nice little be a private investor basically that's yeah the rule. it's a nice life being a private investor but i mean look it still remains to be seen whether the token's actually going to be worth anything in the long run at the moment the messaging's pretty like telegram messaging's free mm. you don't have to pay for any of it um i did get the chance to look through their white paper not in any extended amount of detail but 
I was quite surprised with how detailed it was and how much they went into what they were doing. Um, but yeah, like it's just I think with a lot of these things, we until we see a real use case for the token that translates once they've got an actual working product out. I don't know. I don't know whether there's going to be a lot of value. to There might be some short-term value to it, but in the long run, I'm not sure. I'll just keep an eye on it. Yeah. yeah. The banking giant ING, um, which is a Netherlands-based bank, I think, Yeah. Um, they're becoming a serious blockchain innovator. So coming out of altcoin today, they came up with a modified version of zero-knowledge proofs called zero-knowledge range proofs. Now, um, zero-knowledge proofs, uh, it's like a, it's a protocol that basically tells another party that you know a secret mm. without having to give it away. Yep. Um, now, that was something they'd done in the past. However, they've sort of been building on that, and they've added another little bit um, where they're calling it, um, they're taking that zero-knowledge concept beyond numbers to include other types of data. So this whole zero-knowledge range proofs can be used to prove that you have a salary within a range needed to get a mortgage without mm. revealing your actual salary. Um, you know, you could, for example, there's another example where it's saying, you know, you could um, prove that you, it, uh, there's an example, you know, for example, imagine you could validate that someone lives in a country that belongs to the European Union without revealing which one. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting little... Isn't it interesting seeing a bank coming up with this too? Like, that's yeah. what kind of rocked me when I read this, knowing it was ING and they're, they're a very big bank. But it seems like some of these banks are starting to get a handle on the way that people's sentiment are going towards this as well. And then we've recently seen the the new privacy laws come in in the European Union. We've all been getting emails in our inboxes about updates mm. to privacy policies mm. and all sorts of things. But it seems like everyone is actually beginning to start taking notice of this privacy stuff and it's just cool to see a bank saying oh we could offer you a mortgage without having to take all your information whereas at the moment if you want a mortgage you have to you know you have to tell them what your second dog's name was before, <laughs> they'll, before they'll give you a mortgage you know yeah. so it's it's really cool i think it's a it, it's only it can only be a positive thing hmm. when you've got big companies talking about taking less data and i i talk about this a lot with businesses anyway that the least the less data you take on yourself the better it is for you anyway. Mm. Because once you take that data on, you have to secure it and you have to worry about it getting breached. Whereas if you find a way that you don't have to take all that data on, it's a win-win. It's a win mm. for you and it's a win for the customer. Mm. Um, and that's why blockchain's going to be so important for this stuff because it lets you do that. Super exciting. Next one, Venezuela. They've offered India a 30% discount on oil if they pay with petrol cryptocurrency. <laughs> So that's a good way to sort of pump your own, <laughs> pump your own <laughs> cryptocurrency. But yeah, if you want to laugh, just go look up, uh, find like an honest report on the Petro cryptocurrency because it's a, it's a real like. There's one story coming out of Venezuela that it's been a very successful cryptocurrency sale, and you know thousands of private investors have spent you know billions of dollars on it. But uh, when you look at it from the outside. It's pretty much a complete flop. Mm. Um, and it's so, <laughs> so, yeah, that's all, all we've got to say about that one. Mm. Intel paired up with Johnson & Johnson to track drugs across the supply chain. Why are they tracking drugs? Yeah, so there's a uh, in America, there's a, a what they're calling an opioid crisis. And people have been talking about this for a long time, but no one's really taken notice. And now they're finally starting to take notice that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be prescribing people opioids all the time 
because there are a lot of side effects and people seeing the side effects. And one of the biggest problems with the prescription of opioids is that you've got opioids in nearly every uh, chemist, every pharmacy, and they're quite valuable because people get hooked on them and they'll, they're willing to pay quite a lot of money to get them because they can't get the prescription. So there's been a lot of mis- like opioids going missing within the supply chain, you know, because you think about it, if you've got a pharmaceutical factory um, manufacturing it mm. and then you've got different countries companies that are sending it out in the supply chain and you've got different pharmacies and distributors and anywhere along that line if someone happens to lose a a couple of you know bottles of opioids or something fall off the track yeah that's right and and they'll they'll go somewhere but what intel are looking to do is pair up with johnson and johnson who are one of the main manufacturers of these pharmaceuticals and and build a way to track them using the blockchain across the supply chain so that uh, it makes it a lot harder for things just to get lost. Mm. So it says in the upcoming phase of the project, um, pilot participants will enter data in a way that merely stimulates the movement through the supply chain. Now, if those tests go well, you can see a limited deployment later this year. Wow. So there was, some, there was another little interesting use in it, wasn't there? Um, mm. what, what was that? Yeah, so they, they also said it could uh, it could reveal the doctors who are essentially um, providing, you know, a patient with, you know, prescriptions for the same drug. So if a patient goes to one doctor, says, oh, um, look, I get, I get really bad headaches or something, um, and the doctor says, oh, okay, well, I'm going to prescribe you this, and they go to another doctor and say, oh, I get really bad headaches, I, I really need something, and the other doctor says, oh, I'll prescribe you this too, the patient suddenly got double the medication mm. and... Uh, the doctors don't know that another doctor somewhere else has given them a, uh, a prescription already. But if you have a combined system, like a blockchain system that everyone can have access to, the second doctor that goes to write the prescription, when he tries to write it, something will flash up saying, this patient was was only given the prescription yesterday or the day before by someone else. So they're hoping that it's going to help prevent that as well. Because you could imagine, like, if World War Two, if they had the blockchain around then, the rations would have been on the blockchain. Yep. And that's kind of scary. Mm. How? Well, to be honest, so if you look at that, then that means every patient has a number on the blockchain. They'd have to for you to know that someone's been double-dosed. Do- double yep. yep. So it kind of, it's, I don't know, it's like a nanny state sort of... yeah thing and yeah. it's very efficient and i don't know if i want the government being that efficient but in yeah. some ways i do want the government to be efficient because they're inefficient yeah it's, it's tough isn't it because like when we've talked about this before there's the there's the potential for restrictions of freedom i guess by the government efficiency but there's also the potential for the saving of a lot of money and i struggle with this a bit too because i see in my job uh i see when i deal with regulators the inefficiency of the regulators and the burden they place on everyday people and taxpayers to essentially uh to essentially follow their rules but they are a lot of the times the ones that are at fault but they'll essentially say well it's not our fault you should have been following the rules to the biggest to the biggest capacity you possibly could whereas it's normally like a lot of the time it's their system that's let everyone down mm. and they've been and the the, ta- the taxpayer of the company's been meant to pick up the slack but if you can build efficient systems you know with um with immutable ledgers and some automation behind them they'll take away a lot of those issues so i can see from that perspective how it'd be really good for a lot of people because essentially it would stop the government being so punitive in the way they deal with people but then 
in another in another instance, then you've you know you've got a system like this where there are some benefits, but you extrapolate it out a little bit further, and there could be some real you know real issues too. Hey, um, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance—they've publicly released their Enterprise Ethereum architecture stack. How exciting is that? Yeah, so we were talking about it a couple of episodes ago, I think, that the fact that they were trying to develop standards for uh, for their development. And look, I can tell you after having to do some smart contracts myself, like working with them recently, they need some standards for this stuff. They need a unified way to do everything. Wow. Uh, and it's really cool to finally see that they've come out with something because I think for a fair while people were, were wondering whether they were going to get anything, any, anything on this really done. But... Mm. Um, They've done it, and the, they've got a. Essentially, what it is, it's, it's a it's a recommended way to build applications from the blockchain up. So you've got like your very base layer of the blockchain, then you've got like Solidity, which mm-hmm. you build your contracts on, and then you've got Web three, which is kind of like the next layer, which is how you interact with the blockchain. And there's all these different stages, and they've essentially said, in an ideal world, this is how we'd recommend doing everything. So no longer do people kind of have to figure it all out themselves. They can just say, well, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance has said this. They probably know better than anyone else what's going to be the best thing. Let's just go with them. And nice. what said. So That's awesome. It's good. Uh, hopefully, we'll see some, uh, some real benefits from it pretty soon. So, Matt, you stumbled upon a pretty cool tool recently. Oh, yeah. So Google Finance closed down... The old Google Finance, which let you track your shares in a portfolio. So I just went on a little, I don't know why, I went on Yahoo to go and see if they had had anything exciting. They've got a little cryptocurrency screener, uh, finance.yahoo.com slash cryptocurrencies. Really useful little tool. Now, it's not a lot different from uh, from the other screeners. However, the one difference which I've always found really useful is the 52-week range charts. Basically, it shows every cryptocurrency and you can see this for all stocks and shares on yahoo finance they've got the 52 week low and the 52 week high at the end of a binary sort of scale naught to one and then it's put it puts a little blue dot of where the current price is on that scale so you can see if it's near the highest point in the last year or near the lowest point and to i've always found it a really useful metric i actually have that set up in some Google spreadsheets for the index funds that I follow. Mm. So I can sort of see whether they're expensive or cheap relative to where it is in the in the you know, in the year. Wow. You can sort of see EOS is, you know, towards the higher part of that. And mm. you can see, you know, um, um you can see Ripple is way lower down yeah. towards the fifty two week low. But um yeah. Look at Nam. Wow. It's really low. What's this one here? Quantum. Wow, that's really useful, isn't it? Mm. So it's a cool little tool. Um, yeah, check it out. It's got a little graph next to it as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, they've managed to pack a lot of detail into just one row for each of them. Mm. Oh, look at that tether. Tether. <laughs> Wait, isn't it exciting how many big companies are jumping onto this whole blockchain stuff? I mean, we went through Azure, mm. we went through... Amazon doing stuff for it. We went on like Walmart, IBM, Maersk. Now you got ING, Goldman Sachs are getting into crypto trading. Peter Thiel's investing in stuff like, you know, big stuff for big institutions to get buying. You got the Winklevoss twins are running Gemini, which is 
about the you know they've built that for for institutions mm. especially so yeah. there's just so much going on there is mate and like there was a lot of news that we couldn't even put in this week but mm. a lot of it was just this company is getting into blockchain that company is getting into blockchain and uh it's really exciting man mm. because like we've you know we've been in the space for a fair while and I, even myself i have this moment of doubt every now and then i'm just like is is blockchain really what we think it's going to be do we think it is going to be a whole new layer of the internet or are we just, you know, are we just being silly? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, are we, mm. there's, there's those moments of doubt sometimes, but, and back when there wasn't as much adoption and it was still all pretty theoretical, I think it was a lot easier to have those moments of doubt. But now as we see more and more companies jump on and start to really see the value in having a trustless distributed ledger, whatever that may be, uh, it's, it's kind of gives you a lot more confidence, you know, that you were onto the right thing, and that mm. gut feeling you had mm. was legitimate, uh, and that this is just, this is going to be around for a long time. So uh, it's really exciting to see. I think the the big thing that's exciting me too is just seeing all the the many ways that people are beginning to put this into play. You know, from IBM and Maersk doing their supply chain uh, arrangement to I was listening to a uh, an interview with Hashgraph only recently, and we'll, mm. we'll talk about them a little bit later on. But they've got together, I think, 6,000 credit unions in America, and they're all Jeez, working on yeah. like a shared ledger to uh, to essentially cut down on all, a whole bunch of inefficiencies they've had in the industry for you know 25 to 30 years. And you always see that argument about, oh, well, you know, blockchain can't do anything that, you know, normal private servers can't already do. But we're beginning to see now a lot of things that, normal private service just couldn't do and blockchain is actually solving those problems mm. so it's just it's it's great to see mate it's, you're not crazy you're not crazy <laughs> <laughs> big eos update what's going on with eos why do what, what, what do our, our eos owner friends need to take out away from yeah so there's been a lot happening in eos the last few months i think we've we've covered a little bit of it here and there but What's happened in the last month and a half, I think, is, I think it's about a month and a half, is that EOS have released two release candidates. And what a release candidate is, is essentially saying, here's the blueprint for a blockchain that could become the one we use on the day of release. So they called it Dawn 3.0, and then they've had one recently called Dawn 4.0. And that only came out, Dawn 4.0 only came out a few days ago, and it was followed with a, a big blog post from Dan Larimer, the CTO of Block One, who are building EOS. Before we jump into that, though, the, the biggest thing that he said and the biggest thing that everyone is saying and the biggest thing that we need to reiterate is that if you've bought EOS, so if you have EOS tokens, which are currently Ethereum tokens, somewhere in a wallet, uh, or if you bought it in the... Sorry. You're right. I've muted it. If you bought it in the token sale... You need to register those tokens with the EOS system. So on June third, I think it is, uh, EOS is going to launch, and they're going to pull. They're going to do a snapshot of all the currently registered EOS Ethereum tokens, and they're then going to port all of those over to the EOS blockchain. And that's going to be it. If you miss that, you've missed out. So basically, a bunch of people are going to lose out because they yep. assume they'd already owned EOS. Yep. And it's not like they can retroactively do something, could they? No, look, look. if enough people miss out, then I guess they may try and do something. But generally, 
from all the prior ones that have happened when someone started up their own blockchain from an Ethereum chain, uh, that's been it. They take that snapshot, that's it. Because they've been telling people this for months and months and months. And I've got to be honest, I haven't actually registered my EOS tokens yet because I'd like to leave everything to the last minute. But um, <laughs> like I've known about it for a long time and it has been pretty widely publicized that this is going on. In, in saying that, though, there's a lot of people that may just assume they have their EOS tokens registered. So, or, you're going to see the price jump after June the 1st. Yeah, well, I, just, I think it's going to cut. There'll be a lot of people that have just either thought they had registered them or just didn't realize that it applied to them or whatever, or it was too hard. Because um, that's another thing. Like, it isn't the simplest thing to go and register your tokens. Like, mm. it's still a little bit complicated, but... I feel like if you were able to participate in the crowd sale that's been going on, registering the tokens should be fine. But if you've bought them on an exchange, what you need to find out is, does my exchange support the the crossover? So on June the 3rd, when this happens, is my exchange going to do it for me? Or do I need to take those EOS tokens out of the exchange, put them in my wallet, and then register that wallet address? Um, Sounds a bit harder, but that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll put some links up anyway uh, in the in the show notes, and we'll remind you again in the next show as well because the uh, the token sale, sorry, the token changeover won't be going on yet when that happens. But yeah, look, don't leave it to the last minute. Register your EOS tokens just after listening to this if you can, and uh, because it would just be the worst thing to miss out. Hmm. There's also a lot of other exciting things happening with EOS, though, isn't there? There's um, even just if you look at their GitHub, they've had and GitHub's where all the co- open source code is stored for any mm-hmm. project. So it's kind of like a a big hub for everyone who's developing something. They've had over a thousand GitHub commits Jeez. in the last month, which essentially means the code has been updated almost a thousand times, which is huge. Mm. I think it's like the eighth most active project in mm. all of the tech world or something ridiculous. Um, so, it's safe to say the development's ramping up in anticipation of launch. Mm. All the block block producers, they're trying to get themselves attention, aren't they? Um, when yeah. we went to an EOS presentation, it was run by a group who, I think it was EOSphere, who were saying, look, we want to be a block producer for Australia. So, mm. to recap, um, how, how is the block producing going to be happening in EOS. Yeah, so EOS is going to have 121 block producers. So you'll often hear that EOS is going to have 21 block producers or 51, which I think is Steemit. Um, But it's going to be 121 block producers. And how that's going to work is there's going to be 20 permanent block producers or near permanent block producers who are voted in by the community. And they're voted in by the token holders and Mm -hmm. they're, they're the community. And then one out of the other 101 block producers who aren't don't have a high enough amount of votes to be part of the 20, uh, they'll be randomly elected uh, every time a block's produced, which I think is every two seconds, to mine the 21st block and mm. get the block reward. Um, so, the uh, say, like if you look at Ethereum, for example, Ethereum has what uh, essentially an unlimited amount of block producers. Anyone that hosts a node can be a block producer, but it's essentially become about five or six actual block producers in reality because everyone's pulled into mining pools and there's a lot of equipment uh, that's that's needed to do what we need it to do. 
the EOS argument has been, well, 21 is actually pretty good. If we just give the responsibility to produce the blocks to the 21 block producers, then, you know, that's that's going to be pretty good. So, yeah, look, it's not as decentralized as some people would hope. But then again, if you look at... We were just looking at a site called Are We Decentralized Yet? And it shows you the amount of people that hold 50% of the block producing power. And, like, Bitcoin was three, Ethereum was three, um, IOTA was one... I think NEO was one. So most of them aren't even approaching that kind of, you know, 20 or 21 equal shares of block mm. producing power. So uh, I'm. it's not, not not as big of a problem for me. I think if you give the, the power to the token holders to elect them as mm-hmm. well, um, it makes them compete. And we've been seeing a lot of competing from block producers. I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, even Eosphere have been in touch with RMIT, which is, um, I think, a university in Perth okay. um, to do some research for them. And there's a lot of other bot producers that are essentially kind of campaigning, like you would in a, a political campaign, to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do, you know, spend this much on blockchain education or we're going to spend this much on um, community initiatives or we'll start our own venture capital fund. And they're all essentially making promises to kind of get themselves elected. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting in the development update was the idea of vote decay. Mm. So when you vote for a block producer, your the val- the weight of your vote decays over time. Mm. So it sort of incentivizes users to keep voting for those 20 block producers without you know just you vote once and then forget about Set it and then the, yeah, so mm. it's an interesting sort of system there. Um, but yeah. So a bit more often than our uh, three or four yearly <laughs> democracy day. <laughs> so, so. There's more left-handed days than there are democracy days. In there. <laughs> yeah, and look, um, I've been hanging out in their developer Telegram as well. So they've got a Telegram channel just for mm-hmm. developers. And I'm just trying to get familiar with a lot of the, the documentation and mm-hmm. what's actually going on in there. And, mate, there's been a lot of activity in that channel. And what's been really cool to see is that... There's a lot of um, community uh, projects in there that are very active in there. And I, I went on one just a couple of days ago, which was like a... It's based out of Rio. And they were essentially trialing a, a whole EOS ecosystem. And they wanted, they've wanted they got a... They've been developing a way to do some plug-and-play uh, smart contracts, I mm-hmm. think. And I got in there and had a little bit of a look, but they were just you know handing all that out for free, essentially, and saying, look, if you like this, then vote for us because we're going to do more of this. Um, but also like Dan Larimer, who's the creator, you know, the CTO of EOS, mm-hmm. uh, who you think would just be way too busy to do any kind of community engagement, really. He's in there all the time. Like, I'll generally pop in there once or twice a day. And if you scroll up, you'll just see every, you know, 20th or 30th comment. There's Dan Larimer, like explaining something or someone will just jump in and be like, oh, um, I'm trying to get EOS installed on my computer and I can't, I'm having this error. And before anyone else can even post to help him, Dan's there like, oh, um, you've done this wrong or have you tried this? And he'll like just sit there and troubleshoot for him, which is just, (laughs) it's really cool to see, Mm. man, because I think a lot of that used to go on with the blockchain space. Like I used to hear about Vitalik, Buterin, the Ethereum one, just showing up randomly in different channels and helping people out. But you don't hear about it much anymore. But it's just cool to see Dan is even though they've made a stupid amount of money, like so much money from this mm. token sale, and they're pretty busy trying to get this thing ready for launch, Dan's still in there helping the community 
build a lot of this stuff. So, mm. yeah, that's um, that's really interesting to see. And then the, the VC fund, they're increasing their funding, investing in more projects, which is pretty cool. And then their YouTube channel was talking about a hackathon that was coming up next month, wasn't it? A global hackathon with a few million dollars in prizes? Yeah, yeah, they've got a global hackathon going on at the start. And then I think they're also going to different cities. I think they're coming to Sydney in August. Yep. They're doing London. And I think it's finishing in New York or something. And you get a chance to, I think if you win it, you get to pitch your idea to yeah, Dan to directly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or venture capital. Oh, I thought it was Block One's VC thing, but it yeah, might be Block One's like, VC I, I, thing. I didn't yeah. pay enough attention. Maybe to Dan's it. assessing them. I can't remember. And yeah, you got points for you know innovative use of the blockchain and stuff like that. So it's pretty pretty exciting. So I think it's EOSHackathon.io. Mm. Um, yeah, 1.5 million in prizes, which is probably not a lot considering how many billions they raise, but <laughs> hey, it's, but it's something, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's really and cool. I think, man, I think we're seeing the difference between a fully decentralized kind of foundational model mm. and a company who's building the software and they want it to succeed. Uh, like, and we've talked about this before, but like the whole venture capital idea behind this thing and them running it a lot more like a company. Uh, while some people are saying, oh, well, it's it's not as decentralized. I think we're seeing it with stuff like this, how having like a, a concerted team with a lot of money behind the project who kind of have the initiative to be able to jump in and just do things mm -hmm. really, really helps. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Hong Kong, June 9 to 10. Sydney, August 4 to 5. London, September 22 and 23. And November 10 and 11 is to be announced. But mm. you, you, you didn't think that it might be somewhere like New York or Los mm. Angeles or somewhere in America. Exciting. If they're not classified as a security. Maybe it's just on the Cayman Islands. Yeah. <laughs> hey, exciting times. Yeah. But look, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we could talk about with EOS. We won't go into everything, but we'll link the uh, latest Dawn 4.0 post in the show notes. Definitely go check it out. They talk a lot. There's a lot of technical terms in there, but you can you can kind of glean what they're trying to do. They, they talk a lot about how they're building RAM on top of the system because mm -hmm. it's like an operating system and that's they're going to charge money for that. And there's a potential that I think I saw Dan talking about this in the Telegram that the way it works is a potential to pay the block producers solely from the RAM usage mm -hmm. and nothing else because uh, it, uh, the way it allocates itself means that they're going to be using a lot. People are going to be using a lot of RAM. And even at the very small prices they're going to be paying for it, that could be enough to fund all the block producer money, which is mm. which is pretty cool. Um there's some stuff in there about smart contracts, a, a bit in there about rise of, uh, sorry, a bit in there about into blockchain communication too, and essentially put tying other blockchains into EOS and also the the side chains that they're doing. Uh, they call it parallelism, and um, there's a bit in there about delegated proof of stake as well and some security things and even name squatting, which I thought was quite mm. a weird thing until I read about it. They're essentially talking about the fact that. Because EOS is going away from these hashes mm. and they're going to have like a username and a password, it's the, the names, like the usernames are going to become very valuable because they'll kind of become like your address mm. on the EOS internet system. So, if we wanted FOMO show, yeah. that'd be like an eight-letter address that uh, would be quite valuable. And someone at the moment, if they didn't uh, make this limit yeah. right now could jump in there and register FOMO show and register a whole bunch of other stuff for, for no money at all 
And then once mainnet launches, have all these things and just say, oh, well, you got to pay me a million dollars to get, get FOMO show. So, have a read. Really interesting. Really cool to see what EOS is doing. Even if you're a skeptic on the project, I think there's one thing you, you can't deny and that that's that it's they're doing a lot of work. It's not vaporware. Whether it turns out to be what we think it might be, that's another thing. But I think it's definitely something that we need to take good notice of. Hmm. Just another quick public service announcement. Uh, Pivx, if you are a holder of Pivx, they have a mandatory they have a mandatory wallet update that's uh, that's coming out, and you need to upgrade by May eighth, uh, and that's May eighth at midnight GMT. So, if you hold Pivx, just jump in, jump on their site. Uh, they have a, a guide there to to help upgrade your wallet, but it's a mandatory update. And, uh, yeah, just do that before May 8th. The big question that everyone's been asking recently is how we, how do we scale these blockchains? How do, we make, how do we make things work when more and more people get on board? More transactions are made. And there are a bunch of different ways all these different blockchain projects are tackling this. Let's look at some of the ways that these different blockchains are looking to scale their platform. There's a, there's a number of ways that people are trying to uh, tackle this. You've got... Ethereum is looking at sharding and sidechains. Bitcoin are looking at Lightning Network. Bitcoin Cash have just um, made larger blocks. EOS is talking about parallel execution and delegated proof of stake. NEM's talking about off-chain execution. And then we've got things like Hashgraph, Constellation, IOTA, which are called, which are directed acrylic graphs or DAGs. So we'll run through some of these and just look at each different approach to the solution. There's There's a number of approaches and we don't really know Who's going to win out? But they're interesting, and there are some really novel approaches to this. Cool. Let's start from the top. So, what's how how are um, how's Ethereum? What are their what are their options that they're looking at? Yeah. So, the Ethereum is a very decentralized project in in in, a, in the sense that there's a lot of development going on for it, and it's coming from a lot of different places. So, you've mm-hmm. got the Ethereum Foundation, which are kind of just like the uh, the organization behind the original Ethereum. Mm-hmm. You've got the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, which is like a, a group of businesses who've all teamed up together to say, we need to make sure this works for us. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a number of other projects out there who are all trying to solve very distinct problems with Ethereum for their own projects because they're all building on top of it. So it's a very diverse ecosystem. And what's actually happened is there's been a number of different proposed solutions. To this one that I've heard a lot about is sharding. What on earth is that? Mm. So sharding is essentially a scaling out process. So as opposed to scaling up, and it divides data across multiple servers instead of one. And that's essentially because one server is the main bottleneck to traffic. So right. if you remember, like back in the old days when you used to have to buy a ticket of like Ticketek or something, mm. and everyone was trying to buy a ticket at the same time. The system would crash and no one would be able to buy a ticket mm-hmm. simply because that was all on one server. Mm. And what happened is that Ticket Tech worked out, well, crap, we've just got to either make our server way more powerful or mm-hmm. we have to have a number of servers all linked together to handle the, the load and you know distribute it across all those servers. And they found that distributing things across all the servers worked the best. And that's kind of what sharding is. So sharding is essentially saying you've got the full ledger at the moment. And every Ethereum node at the moment has to host the full ledger on their computer. But with a shard, you could have like a shard A, shard B, shard C, and shard D. And they could all host like 25% of the ledger. Mm -hmm. And 
be in constant communication with each other and mm-hmm. have cryptographic things going on behind the scenes. So, you would be able to know that Sade's ledger is still legitimate mm. and Chad C's ledger is still legitimate. And you could essentially have, you know, so let's say you have a thousand nodes in the world, you could have a hundred nodes hosting each version of the shards. So, you could have sh- 10 shards, a hundred nodes hosting each shard. And all of a sudden, you've now got 10 times the amount of transactional power that mm-hmm. you that you had beforehand and you've also got a bunch of nodes that aren't are only focused on one area of the ledger they're not focused on the whole ledger right so you can kind of think of it as like a you know the reason they call it sharding is like if you have like a glass sheet and you shatter it mm-hmm. it shatters into a number of pieces but you can you could theoretically still put all those pieces back together and it'd be a complete glass sheet Mm. So, yeah, that's quite interesting because, yeah, Vitalik, Vitalik Buterin, I, t- I still don't know how to pronounce his name <laughs> properly. He said, the primary goal is massive scalability improvement. Each one of the shards uh, will have as high capacity than the current existing Ethereum chain. So, that should be, you know, if that proposed solution goes up, it's got a lot of potential. Yeah, yeah. And so, you essentially got a ledger that's no one hosts a full ledger. Mm-hmm. Uh, which and that's what kind of slows a lot of it down at the moment. Everyone has to host a full ledger, so if no one has to host a full ledger, but can just host parts of it, that'll that'll speed it up. Um, and I, I guess the the big issue with that that people are currently wrestling with is well, how do you know that all the people hosting that one part of the ledger are doing the right thing? And what if you need to have people? Say people have got a smart contracts that work on several parts of the ledger mm. and they're all in different shards, there has to be a way to kind of tie all that together to make mm. sure it stays secure and there's no uh, attack vectors. Because if you can imagine like 10 of those boxes, mm. they all have to be linked somehow. But if you make those links too weak, let's say you only link it with you know one, one connection, then a, a hostile actor could just attack that link That's, yeah. and not attack the whole network at all, but just just work in the you know kind of like someone getting a getting a knife into a gap and then like pushing and pulling at that gap until mm. they knock something loose. That's that's what they're scared of. So that's one issue with sharding, and uh, there's not really a an answer to that yet, and they're still developing it. Mm-hmm. But that's one way they're hoping to um, to scale the network. Now. There's another thing that they're doing, and we've talked about this before, and that's they're hoping to move to a proof-of-stake consensus protocol instead of a proof-of-work. Well, yeah, there's been talk for, I mm. mean, a while about them sw- switching to proof-of-stake, but again, they need consensus to be able to shift, you know, everyone, like they need agreement mm. from the community to shift to that. Yeah. But it's also not easy to switch the engine in a moving car. Yeah, yeah. And that's been the biggest problem is that they're, they're, they're saying that, you know, we want to swap to proof of stake, but because currently Ethereum is all proof of work at mm-hmm. the moment, they've got a huge mining network built up around proof of work, and the miners hold a lot of the power on the network because they're the block producers. And they've been trying to swap to uh, something called a Casper protocol, which has been in development since 2015. Essentially, what they're hoping to do is incentivize the miners to switch to proof of stake by ramping up the difficulty rate to mine through proof of work and essentially making it. You know, people have far higher costs to, to mine on proof of work and want to instead swap to proof of stake. But that hasn't had a lot of success as of yet. Ethereum, I even remember a year ago now that they were saying they're really close to swapping to proof of stake mm-hmm. and we're still seeing them on proof of work. And that's mm-hmm. because everything needs to be done by consensus. 
and uh yeah it's just it's just been one of those things that's never really happened and I mean, there's another one called Plasma as well. And that's like a framework for smart contracts, which essentially if you have a distributed application, you can uh, you can run like your own blockchain. So your own version of Ethereum. Okay. And then you essentially come back to the main chain to settle, to settle a lot of your transactions. And you okay. get the kind of the benefit of the main chain security when you come back to mm-hmm. it but you're able to host your own little network to run all your contracts on, which right. is kind of similar to what Lightning Network's doing. It's got some similarities to what NEM are doing as well, taking right. smart contracts off off chain. But then uh, at the same time as well, then you run into the issue of you're not on the main chain, you're not mm-hmm. getting all the security benefits of the main chain. How do people know that what's happening on the their own little network is actually legitimate when they come back because mm. it's all about you know trustlessness and how do you how do you create things that are trustless and so uh yeah mate plasma is another one that just it seems like they're, they're trying to build it and trying to implement it but ethereum's so big now and unwieldy it's it seems like they're having a bit of difficulty even getting that in as well there's a lot of there's a lot of proposed solutions for Ethereum. A lot of very smart brains working on it. Yeah, yeah, and look, the, the the monetary incentive is definitely there because most of the ICO money is pouring into Ethereum projects, and it's in their best interest to make sure they can use the network well. Hmm. Um, so we'll put the link in the show notes to the different uh, solutions that Ethereum are trying to do. There's a lot of controversy around some of the things that they're trying to do, and it's quite complex. Uh, we may look at it. When it gets more fleshed out and it looks like it may be being implemented, we might revisit it again. But at the mm. moment, uh, it's still just all talk mm. and and we're not really seeing a lot of action on the implementation side. So Bitcoin, they've they've had the more recently implemented... It's been implemented pretty much, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it's implemented. Lightning. Yeah. So the whole issue started with SegWit. What was that all about? Yeah, so if you go back about three years ago, there was... Uh, Everyone was looking ahead with Bitcoin and they were saying, look, at the moment, one megabyte blocks are working, but if this network becomes even remotely popular, then we're going to have some issues because we can't fit as many transactions as we need into one megabyte blocks. Mm -hmm. So we've got to upgrade the network somehow. So Toshi built the whole Bitcoin mechanism to essentially say, well, if we need to upgrade the network, then let's all just come together, vote for something, we'll put some proposals out, best one wins, we'll upgrade the network. And that had been happening pretty well until that point. But then this a whole debate began around this scaling thing. And no one could really reach an agreement. Some people said, why don't we just make the blocks bigger? You know, we've got one megabyte blocks at the moment. Our big issue is that they're just not big enough. Let's just increase them to four megabytes or eight megabytes. Instantly, then you've got, you know, four times or eight times more storage. Four times or eight more times more data can fit in any one block that's mined. So that seemed to make sense to some people. But other people said, well, we could do that, but then we're getting on a, a path where every time we need to scale the network, we make the blocks bigger, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's a lot of difficulties with it. So SegWit was another proposed solution. And you can kind of imagine SegWit like, you know, there's a bus, okay? And everyone's bringing their luggage onto the bus and they're taking up all the seats. And uh, so what a SegWit bus does is it kind of says, well, let's put a luggage bin underneath. And that's separate to the cabin of the bus, but you can store all your luggage in there. You're not going to need it until we get to our destination anyway. So you don't need to see it. You don't need to have it here right now. Once we get there, then we can sort out all the luggage. Right. We can pass it to all the people. You'll have your name tag on it anyway. We'll pass it to all the people once we get there. And we can also fit more people in the bus then. 
mm. if we put all the the luggage underneath. Essentially, they kind of said, "Look, we'll let, let's um, let's have the witness part of the block, which kind of has which has the signature and a few other details in it, on one chain, and let's have the transaction, so like the actual." monetary amount that's being sent on the other chain. Mm. That's a really simplistic explanation. But essentially, they were like, let's cut the transaction in half. One thing can go on one chain, one thing can go on the other. Once it's all finished, we'll, we'll kind of cryptographically link it all back together. Right. And, you know, it'll be great. We'll just double the double the throughput in the network straight away. So, a lot of people, that, that made sense to a lot of people. A lot of people said, you know, Sasashi didn't think of it, uh, but he probably would have if he was still around. And they also said, look, the signatures, like the part where you sign it, don't actually affect the transaction ID, so it makes sense to segregate them and then join them all back at the end. Hmm. A, lo- a lot of people said, well, look, we, we don't like that approach. We want to keep everything together because it's more secure. Let's just increase the block size. So that became what was called the user-activated activ- user soft fork, which became basically a hard fork. And it was where we got... Bitcoin Cash, mm-hmm. and then the other Bitcoin chain, which some people call Bitcoin Core, but it's still essentially called Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin Cash went off and and made eight megabyte block transactions. That's what they said. We'll just go do that. And Bitcoin, the main Bitcoin chain, kept implemented segregated witness, and they did it in a way that you could still send normal Bitcoin transactions or SegWit transactions. Fast forward a few more months, and the network was slower than ever because there was just so many transactions on the network and SegWit hadn't really seemed to do anything. And there was only like 20% adoption or something on it anyway. So there had been another thing that people had been working on called Lightning Network. And that had been being worked on for a fair while behind the scenes. And as all this was going down, I think what happened is the developers that were left on the main Bitcoin chain and the block producers said, we need to do something really quick because Bitcoin Cash was working really well. Everyone, there was no clogging on that network. Transaction mm-hmm. fees were at an all-time minimum. Mm-hmm. And people were kind of looking over at Bitcoin Cash and being like, well, that's that kind of looks like the better solution at the mm-hmm. moment, you know? And so they said, okay, we've got this thing called Lightning. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> you know, it's in the name. It's Lightning. Yeah. Um, and that was based on a technology called payment channels. Okay. What's that all about? It's essentially, it, I think it comes from the current banking world. I think this goes on a lot more in the current banking world. And a two-party payment channel is essentially created when two parties create a multiple signature transaction on the blockchain. So, what happens is one party will essentially commit funds and they'll say, what I want to do is I want to now go off the main blockchain channel and I want to have my own channel for transacting directly with you. So, let's say I want to send you, Joe, you know, 0.2 of a Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. but I know that you're going to be sending me some Bitcoin soon too, and I might want to send you a bit more. Like, let's say we've got a a payment arrangement here, and we've got money going back and forward between us all the time. We could do that on the main Bitcoin blockchain, but that's expensive. Like, we've got a whole bunch of transaction fees. We might be waiting for like a month for our transaction to clear, you know, in like a really bad time. Or we could say, let's create a channel between us and let's, whenever we need to come back to the blockchain to report that, mm-hmm. let's come back to the that main blockchain to settle those, all those transactions. So, say we go for two months 
back and forth on this so-called payment channel and I send you money, you send me money and then we get to the end of the two months and we say, okay, we've kind of, we're kind of done for the moment. Let's close this channel because it still costs a little bit to keep the channel open. Let's close this channel. So we come back to the main blockchain and we, we show them and this all happens behind the scenes but essentially what happens is we show them all our payment records and the um, and there's algorithms that go behind that and then the blockchain looks at it and goes, yep, that all looks legit. Mm-hmm. let's uh, put that in the next block. And so we end up with our accounts get updated with the results of those two payments, but all those payments get logged onto the main blockchain, like hashed and logged onto the main blockchain like they normally would. So what you essentially get is you get a whole bunch of transactions that happen on little side channels. Mm-hmm. And then when they need to come back and report it to the main blockchain, like let's say I'm sending you money all the time and then I go, oh, crap, I need to send money to Sally over mm-hmm. here. It would make sense for me then to say, okay, let's finish our payment channel, come back to the main blockchain, settle it, and then I'll open up a payment channel with Sally. Because until then, I can't really make any more payments because the main blockchain doesn't know what my actual account balance is. And if I try and make a payment, it'll go, well, you've still got this payment channel open over here and we don't know if you've still got the money you say you've got. So, you need to come and settle first Mm. so we can see what's been going on before you pay someone else. Mm. And that's kind of the idea of Lightning. There's a whole bunch of maths behind it, some... um, some you know some some complex computations behind it but it's essentially about taking the load off the main network and having some other channels behind the scenes to to do all that it's interesting to see there's that i think they've got about 50 percent adoption now for lightning so a lot of people are adopting it for payments so yeah i guess we'll just have to see how it goes Hmm. so what did bitcoin cash do then mate so we've talked about bitcoin with lightning what's bitcoin cash's approach didn't they just make larger blocks yeah. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, that was easier easier said than explained. Mm. Um, mm. Wow. EOS, they're going for parallel execution and delegated proof of stake. Yep. Parallel execution. That's just what splitting a task among into multiple different sort of getting processed in multiple places at once. Yep. Yep. So if you've got a PC and you've got like a you know eight core processor it's eight cores isn't it? is that what they call it yeah yeah well, like what was that one remember when intel came out with like an eight like a quad core yeah yeah like quad core and like quad core and like octa core you know yeah oh, mate the core two duo was like the coolest thing that ever happened in my life but yeah and then we got yeah quad core but that's kind of how it it scaled in the early days so if, with your pcs you'll remember yeah we used to have like a one core cpu and then we had like the core two which was like two cores and people had to build their programs to sort of split the tasks across both processes. Yeah. Yep. And then if you remember like it, once we got to like six and eight, you could hit your task manager and you could go to the one tab and you'd see like eight different mm. cores of your mm. CPU and it'd kind of share them out mm. across all eight. That's essentially what EOS is proposing to do, but on like an even bigger scale. Mm. So they're essentially saying the more nodes we have, the more things we can execute in parallel. And we'll build a system that can essentially do what the developers had to do early on and work out how to distribute it across all the cores. So that's their plan. There's a whole bunch of complex maths and cryptography and all sorts of things that goes on behind it. But because EOS are are kind of picturing themselves as a blockchain operating system, Mm. it makes sense for them to have 
things like you know parallel execution with cores and delegated proof of stakes another one which we've talked about previously that um, if you make the block producers a smaller group of very very efficient essentially data centers a lot Mm -hmm. of block producers are probably going to be data centers Mm -hmm. and you say here's the rules the people can elect you if you're doing something we don't like then we'll kick you out but we just need you to keep the network fast and secure um that then means that it's it's quite easy for the network to scale. And Dan's already proven it. Oh, sorry, um, it's already been proven with Steemit, which was the previous project that Dan was working on. And that's like a social network, which has, you know, thousands of transactions per second, apparently, uh, you know, because every like and post and mm. everything is a transaction. Um, and it's scaled really well. So mm. that's their approach. They're essentially saying, let's uh, let's spread it out. Let's have the fastest people act as the people who are producing blocks mm-hmm. and there's a number of other things in there which look it'd probably just be better for you to go and read the development update and see all the different things they're doing mm-hmm. to make sure this scales um, and then yeah. NEM they've gone with off-chain execution so there's a lot of stuff that you know on some blockchains like Ethereum that would all happen on the Ethereum blockchain yep. NEM as we discussed last episode they do a lot of the stuff that yeah a lot of the stuff off chain so you've got computation um you've got smart contracts um you've got uh, there there are avenues so that the the nem blockchain just tracks the assets the smart mm. contracts and all that stuff mm. happens elsewhere mm. if you didn't hear last episode we we went into nem in quite a lot of depth so we won't rehash all of that in this episode but their general strategy is to say okay if you're if you're doing something and you're doing it well at the moment then let's just plug into that because if, if if you're a business and you you want to use blockchain technology, but you've also spent a lot of money developing something else, you don't just want to throw everything out. Mm. You want to just be able to plug in what you're already using mm. and then build blockchain for anything new, you know, or anything that needs it. And so they've kind of taken the approach of, well, we don't think it's good to do smart contracts on the blockchain because it's computation mm-hmm. and our system's not designed to do a lot of computation on chain and it's more expensive. So... Let's just let you do it off chain, you know, and then you can just report back to the the um, you through APIs. You can just monitor what's going on on the chain, and whenever something happens that you need to use smart contract logic for, it'll just do it through the APIs and then report back to the the chain. So, mm. um, yeah, that's that's uh, th- so they're integrating a lot of current tech, which seems to be their approach, and it seems to be working. And they're also making it very easy for people to spin up their own private blockchain. So I think we talked last week that um that microsoft have now started integrating them essentially for enterprise to start building their own private blockchains because it seems to work really well so yeah that, that's more of a a str- strategic difference in approach that they've mm-hmm. taken but that's their way that they're going to try and scale blockchain technology so the next thing let's uh let's talk about dags man dags dags yeah, dags do you like dags thanks what yeah, dags. Dags. You like dags? Oh, dogs. Sure. I like dags. Directed acyclic graphs. Yep. Um, if you want to get confused, read the Wikipedia page. It's got Seriously. some diagrams to add even more confusion. Stuff about finite directed graphs with no directed cycles. Polynomial times. Vertices. Topological sorting. Oh, partial order. 
Finite partial order? Polyno? Yeah, mate, it's ridiculous. Yeah, there's literally a line there that says the corresponding concept for undirected graphs is a forest. Ooh. Which they say means an undirected graph without cycles. I mean, I thought a forest was just a group of trees. So, a, a directed acyclic graph, or a system built on that anyway, which is what uh, Hashgraph, Constellation, and IOTA, who were three of these DAGs, they call them, mm. DAG systems. Uh, what it is is essentially the graph is a structure consisting of nodes that are connected to each other with edges. So, right. if you imagine like circles, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of circles, mm-hmm. and they're connected by their edge. Yep. So, you might have like one circle and then three circles around it, yep. and the edges connect to each other. Uh-huh. The directed part of it is the connection between the edges, uh, which have a direction, and the acyclic part of it just means that it's non-circular. Right. If you move from node to node by following the edges, you'll never encounter the same node for a second time. Okay. That's kind of their, their theory behind it. So, all that sounds really confusing, but all that to say is that it's it's just a graph that's built in a certain way. Right. <laughs> and it's built in a way that if you follow it, you'll never, ever, ever touch somewhere you've been before that's pretty okay. cool so that's really conceptual that doesn't make a lot of practical sense and it's why i dropped out of uh math c which is like <laughs> the highest level of maths in grade <laughs> 11 12 because it was all graphs and it didn't make sense but when you hear people talk about this apparently it makes a lot of sense from a blockchain perspective I think it'll just be simpler if we talk about Hashgraph, which right. is like one of the projects which is implementing it. So, what is Hashgraph? So, Hashgraph isn't really a blockchain. Okay. And they kind of say that they're a blockchain project that isn't a blockchain. That's kind of how they build themselves. It uses two special techniques apart from um, directed acyclic graphs. And the first one is gossip. And the second one is virtual voting. And they use those two techniques to achieve fast, fair, and secure consensus. So, gossip is calling any random node, so a node is like a computer in a network, and telling that node everything you know that it doesn't know, okay? So, it's kind of like, if I was to say to you, Joe, did you know that I'm not wearing any pants? (laughs) And you'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I didn't know that. Thanks for telling me. Yeah, appreciate the insight. And then if you're like, did you know that I'm wearing pants? And I'd be like, no, I didn't. Mate, I wasn't sure, but now I know. Um, that's a little bit of gossip. In distributed ledger technology, they take that premise and apply it to a distributed network perspective. So, their view is that every node doesn't need to know the same thing as every other node. As long as all the nodes are talking to each other and they're all sharing information in a way that makes sense, they don't actually have to process you know, everyone's transactions at the same time. It's enough that one node which is connected to all the other nodes, processes the transaction and stores it and just tells the other nodes what it's doing. Right. And that's kind of their perspective on it. And it all works on this graphical system, which is the the DAG system. And yeah, so this gossip system essentially, you know, to do that, they attach a couple of hashes to everything they say. And those hashes line up to the mathematical algorithm that governs the system. So that's how it keeps everything secure. They essentially say that just using this, just using this system, you can build this hash graph, they call it, and it just constantly updates as more information is gossiped on each node. They've got this gossip protocol, and then they've got a voting mechanism, which they also have on top of that. And they've got a lot of mathematical proofs behind that voting mechanism as well. 
to yep. say that when one node votes one way, it gets gossip somewhere else. And through that gossip system, you're able to work out how every single node votes in the system. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're a part of this Hashgraph DAG system and someone makes a proposal saying, I think we should do this with the network. Mm-hmm. I think we should add this new feature that everyone's talking about to the network. If you vote for that feature on a traditional blockchain, uh, that vote would be recorded on all the ledgers, all the nodes everywhere. But with Hashgraph, they're saying, well, that slows everything down because we've got to record it everywhere. So why don't we just record it? Um, you just you just tell everyone else that you're doing that. And then everyone else will know you're doing that because we've got this math mathematical algorithm behind the scenes that will record that. And we can very quickly work out whether you've got enough votes or not. Similar thing with a transaction. You know, If you want to send a transaction to the network, you just send it to your node. So you just host a node. Uh, and it's a part of this hash graph. And then um, once you send it to the network, as long as you're meeting all the standards of that network, then that transaction is pushed out. It's almost like they're doing a show of hands sort of thing. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a lot a lot centered around this whisper thing. Um, they also say that they're what's called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerant, mm-hmm. which essentially means that their consensus is guaranteed and they're not making any assumptions about the speed of the internet. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say if someone's attacked, like one node's attacked, and uh, they can't get any messages for 10 or 20 minutes, mm-hmm. the network doesn't assume that they're going to be able to get the messages no matter what. The network can still function completely fine if they don't get the message at all. Um, and that's quite important in the world of, of systems engineering. And Hashgraph, at least, say that no one else has achieved that. They've just achieved the, a lower level of that tolerance. Um, there's a lot of mass behind this project. It's quite complex. But what I'm, I'm doing a lot of research in, into it myself at the moment. Um, and we might dig into it deeper in another episode. But all that to say, I think there's a very real possibility that this is a better model than the current blockchain model and they're starting to get some enterprise adoption on their end as well. Um, we talked earlier about the credit unions that uh, that have just signed on with Hashgraph and I think there's about 6,000 of them, mm. different credit unions mm. in America and they've looked at current blockchain systems and they've looked at Hashgraph and they think Hashgraph is better wow. for, for their needs. So... Um, there are some issues, mate. Like, it's still all really theoretical. We don't really know how fast it is. They're saying it can be very fast, but Hashgraph, they're a private company. They've mm. patented their technology. It's wow. really hard to get results out of them because a lot of what they're doing is really shrouded in mystery. They've kind of said, oh, we'll just do it for private organizations at the moment. We won't open it up to open source, which is fine. You know, mm-hmm. they can do that, but it makes it hard for us to test whether their claims are actually true. Mm. Um, and there's also some... Big issues, I think, with whether uh, the like the security side of it. They're saying it's very secure, and I understand that uh, fr- from what I've heard from them so far. It's and I'm not a mathematician. It's just whenever they get asked, "Is it secure?" They say, "Oh, we've got maths that can prove that it's secure." Um, I haven't seen anything practically to say that it's actually secure. Mm. And I think when you've only got one node that's gossiping to everyone else, if you've got a bad actor, you have to ask the question: Well, how can we know? without a shadow of a doubt that what that node is telling all the other nodes through this gossip thing is legit. You know, that's why we've got this blockchain and everyone holds the same information. 
is to make sure that it's secure. It's still relatively unknown, um, and IOTA and, and the Constellations are two others that are doing this decentralized acrylic graph technology. IOTA's got like the Tangle, they call it, mm-hmm. which is pretty similar. You know, you, you have one node that talks to two nodes, and those two, two nodes talk to other two nodes, and the other two nodes talk to the other two nodes, and you just get this big tangle they call it Mm. and yeah it's it's a really interesting technology we probably haven't done it justice but if you're interested in that go check it out it is definitely a way that we may end up solving all this scaling stuff at the end of the day we're going to have to bring data in from outside the blockchain and we're going to need a way that we can kind of say oh well we trust that data Generally, the, the programs that are bringing data in from outside are called oracles. They're mm-hmm. kind of like a link between a server somewhere and the blockchain. There's kind of like an oracle program in the middle. But the question always is, well, if you're sending me financial data from someone's server, how do I know that's true financial data? And if I build a whole system trusting that financial data and you send me the wrong data, then I'm going to be stuffed. You know, There's no way for me to verify your data outside of the blockchain. In the blockchain, there's a way for me to verify it because mm-hmm. everyone's already on the chain and I can I can see it pretty clearly on the ledger. So there's that that's one of those problems. It's like the chicken and the egg. It's like, oh, I can't trust your data, but I need your data. I need your data, but I can't trust your data. Mm-hmm. What, what do we do? And there's a few solutions that have been proposed. One that really stood out to me recently was this project called Witnet. And mm-hmm. they're essentially proposing to build a trust system for oracles. So they want to... Um, they want to be able to make it so that you'll essentially be able to have a rating of these different oracles and how trusted they are and people will be able to test them and make sure that they're doing the right thing. And as they build reputation, they'll be incentivized to stay uh, true, you know, yeah. so they'll be rewarded in certain ways for making sure their information is always true. And if their information is false, then they won't get that reward um, or they'll... Uh, or they'll be get a bad rating and be kicked off the network and no one will use them. So, mm. it's a really interesting solution. There's a few other people looking to solve that problem as well. But if we're going to scale this thing, we do need a way to make sure that we can bring data in from mm. outside because it's just not practical at the moment to host everything on the blockchain. Um, and I think that's a problem that we're going to have to solve pretty soon because as we start building out these enterprise systems, uh, we're going to need more information coming in from other systems that are already built. So Mm. um, that's going to be a big challenge. Another element to this is building out the tools which actually manage the deployment and interaction with the blockchain. Mm. Um, At the moment, it's quite a basic, bad UI experience. There's, There's something called the Web3 layer, What's that all about? Yeah, so Web3 is kind of like a, a bridge between the blockchain and the internet. So at the moment when you jump on your web browser, it's probably more than likely that it, your everything that you see is running on a, pro, on a programming language called JavaScript mm-hmm. and a few others. There's um, uh, jQuery, Node. Um, React. React. <laughs> but they're all kind of based on JavaScript. Uh, and they interact with servers for you generally. They'll interact with the, the web servers that people are running. And... Uh, when the blockchain, especially with Ethereum, really started to gain traction, everyone said, well, we need to make a standard for this so people can interact with blockchains on a similar kind of level. And so they called it, this Web3 layer was born. And what it, what it is essentially is it it's a layer to take something that's going on on the blockchain mm-hmm. and translate it into something you can see on a web browser and interact with. And vice versa, to take something on a web browser and compile it down to something that can be hosted on a blockchain somewhere. Mm. Um, 
And I've been working with that recently as I've been looking at smart contracts and programming a few myself. Um, and uh, look, I've got to say there's still a long way to go. I think the system's not great. Um, and I think if we're going to scale this and really bring widespread adoption, we need to build better interaction layers between the blockchain and uh, the internet and mm-hmm. web browsers. Um but uh, there's some really promising stuff going on in this sphere. So, uh, a few days ago, Status announced they were partnering with Embark, who are doing a lot of work with building Web3. So, right. the creator of Embark, his name is Iuri Matias. He's done a lot of work in this space. It's kind of been like his life's work the last few years. And mm. he created this thing called Ganache, which is essentially what takes um, a th- uh, uh, some JavaScript and Puts it, puts it into Ethereum, um, right. to, for, to be very simplistic about it. Mm. Um, and anyone who t- uses and tests smart contracts will know about Ganache and, and how useful it is. And he's, um, he's, status is like a decentralized um, application that's trying to build a messaging system. So they've looked at what he's doing and they've said, well, we're building a decentralized application and we're having some big issues with this. Let's bring you and your project on board and help you build out this this Web3 thing. Um, and so they're doing a lot of work around really simplifying uh, the blockchain and making like, a, like frameworks that they can, that people can interact very easily with the blockchain and then kind of distill that information into a way that, you know, you and I could look at it and not even know that we're using a blockchain. Mm. Um, wow. So that's really interesting. That's a, that's, um, that's something else it's, that's where, where there's a lot of work being done with that Web3 stuff uh, just to make sure that as blockchain scale, so do our ways to interact with them. And there's a lot of other projects out there as well. Wow. I'm a bit lost at how that speeds things up, but I guess it's... Well, yeah, I guess it's more from the developer side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely true, actually, because it's... If you can make it easier for developers to build than that yeah like the big issue with development at the moment is it's just so time consuming to get anything on the blockchain Mm. and a lot of it's simply because the 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 tools just aren't up to scratch like what normal web developers are used to working with is so much better and what normal software engineers are used to working with is so much better than what uh blockchain developers have to work with um it's just all so new and this Mm. web3 thing's new Solidity's new. The other languages are new. It's it's really good to see that there's some actual work being done on this stuff in like an open source setting because I think it's giving a lot of people a lot of headaches trying to build for the the scene and a lot of I think a lot of people are probably just look at it at the moment and go it's just too hard. So no, so those those are some of the different scaling approaches. Um, really cool stuff. Really interesting to see how the different projects tackle it. But um, yeah, watch this space. So after the great crash of January 2018, um, we haven't really heard from Dan, Dan, the ICO man. Um, he's one of our guests who's, who we've had on the show a number of times. He, he likes to tell you about the new, new things he's got going on. And um, we hear that he's got a new project this week. Yeah, so it sounds like Dan's got some confidence back and mm. uh, he's got a new product to, um, mm. to pitch to us. So uh, we'll listen like we normally do, and then we'll um, we'll just direct you back to that disclaimer that um, nothing on this show is financial advice, and especially Dan's advice. Um, yeah, we we basically say whatever Dan does, do the opposite. 
Hey, Dan, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Joe. Joe, it's been a while. I, I feel like I haven't talked to you in months. How you been, Joe? Dan, absolutely missed you. It's been so quiet without your presence. Um, What have you got for us this week? Well, Joe, I decided that I needed a holiday after the uh, whirlwind year that was 2017. I got on a cruise ship. I had some time to do some thinking. But, Joe, you know what? I just couldn't keep my phone silent. People were calling me left, right, and center. They were saying, Dan, we want to start an ICO. What should we do? And I said... I'm on holidays. I can't talk to you right now. Wait till I come back. While I was on that cruise ship, Joe, while I was sitting there taking in those sweet rays, I thought, there's something to this. What I need to do is I need to distill all my knowledge and put it in one place, Joe. I need to package it all up in one easy-to-eat, easy-to-manage solution that anyone could take and run with, Joe. So I've come up with what I call the ultimate ICO success formula. What's going on here? The ultimate ICO success formula is what experts don't want you to know. This is the secret sauce, Joe. This is what makes separates the good ICOs from the bad. You heard about Telegram recently, Joe. $1.7 billion, and they didn't even sell publicly, Joe. That was one of the Dan Dan the ICO Man specials. So, I'm going to give your listeners a special insight into what makes ICOs successful. So where does that all start? Well, Joe, the first step, you need to go on Fiverr or some other kind of gig economy site, and you need to hire yourself an ICO website expert. Now, there's a few things you need for your ICO website. First of all, those little spinny no-dot things that you see on the good ones, you need to get yourself some of that. That'll set you back a little bit, Joe. I promise you, it will be worth it. Wow, you're giving away some real free advice here, Dan. So second, Joe, second, what I want you to do after you put the spinny dots on the top of your website, I want you to go down a little bit, and I want you to make a little one of those little bars, Joe, one of those little parallax bars, and I want you to say, Joe, this ICO, like your project, is going to be the platform for X. And fill in X with whatever thing you want to solve. If you want to be the new Bitcoin, Joe, fill in. This is going to be the platform for the the digital revolution in currency, Joe. I don't know what that means, Joe, but most investors don't care what that means anyway. The key is, Joe, you put in that term, the platform. People love it, Joe. Wow, Dan, if you don't sell sausage, you sell sizzle. That's right, Joe. Number three. Number three, what I want you to do after you put that in, I want you to put in a convincing graphic there, Joe. I want you to take some, some boxes, link them up with some, some uh, little arrows, and, and talk about the different layers of the system, Joe. The better it can look, if you make that thing 3D, it looks great. I've seen, I've seen ones with 8, 9, 10 layers, Joe. Well, everyone knows a blockchain doesn't have 10 layers, but the investors, Joe, they don't know blockchain from schmockchain, Joe. So you put in those layers there, it's going to convince people that you know what you're talking about. Next. Next, Joe. This is number four. Keep track. I want you to listen. Keep track as well. Number four. We go down further. What I want you to do, Joe, there's a few sites out there that have stock photos of people. People wearing ties. People wearing professional-looking clothing. You can get them for like $5 a pup. I want you to make some circle icons. Have different experts in those icons, Joe, and then give them convincing names. You have CTO, CEO. Management director of blockchain innovation, whatever you want, Joe. The pictures are the things that are important because people 
people go, they connect with pictures. Underneath, have some advisors. Pick some, pick some personalities out. You want Roger Verder advised on your project? Just chuck him in. He's not going to know. There's so many ICOs around now. It doesn't matter. But Joe, the big mistake people make is they don't shoot to the top. I, I saw one ICO, Joe. They had no one in there. You know what I said to them, Joe? Satoshi Nakamoto. He holds more sway than anyone else. I even said, just put a little question mark in there, Joe. No one knows who Satoshi is. One of the most successful ICOs ever in history. So how do our listeners get their hands on this ultimate ICO success formula? Is there any more to this, Dan? Well, Joe, there is a lot more to this. I wouldn't be the salesman I am, the expert I am, if I gave it all to your listeners right away. So, Joe, I've given the sneak peek into the website, but that's just the first part of the formula, Joe. we got to talk about white papers, Joe. we got to talk about yellow papers, Joe. People are loving yellow papers these days, Joe. It's not enough to have a white paper. You've got to have a yellow paper as well. I don't know what the colors mean, Joe, but people are loving it. You've also got to set up your mailing list, Joe, in a certain way. You've got to, you've got to set up your pre-sales in a certain way, Joe. There's a whole bunch of different things that go into this formula. So, what I'm going to do, Joe, I don't do this much, but I feel I, I like your podcast, Joe. It's been a while since I've been on to add some value to it. So, today, I am offering 50% off the ultimate ICO success formula package, Joe, for the incredible price of... To Ethereum, Joe, today, to Ethereum, I'm going to offer the whole course to your listeners. This offer is only going to be valid for 24 hours. After this, I take it down, Joe. It's gone. It's done. And you're going to have to pay for Ethereum like every other schmuck. I'll send you the link. Your listeners can go there and they can get the ultimate ICO success formula. I guarantee if you're not satisfied within 60 days, Joe, you can ask for your money back. But I've not had one unsatisfied customer yet, Joe. You best to love them. Wow, damn, just there's so much energy when you're on the show, man. I mean, thanks for coming on. I'm sure our listeners are, are super pumped to uh, to send their ether to you. So, um, yeah, we'll put the link in the, the show notes. Not a problem, Joe. Catch you later. Mate, we are not putting that link in the show notes. <laughs> Look, I think what he what he lacked in uh, in substance, he made up in enthusiasm <laughs> and you can tell he's been gone for months because um, I mean he's got a whole success film yeah it's anyway. one cruise ship and he's selling courses on the internet do you know the sad thing is what he was talking about was actually pretty accurate it's true you know if you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please feel free to share it with them. Yeah, you can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our Telegram at FOMO.show slash Telegram. And just, just so you remember, we've moved from Slack again. So, so feel jump free on Telegram. to jump on, yeah. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The FOMO Show. And YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at The FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us, like always. If you like our show, please do... Do feel free to subscribe in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel and you'll get notified whenever a new episode goes up. Exciting. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no further. This episode was authorised by the Australian Taxation Office. I feel like the Australian Taxation Office gets a, a really bad rap, you know? Yeah. They're just trying to do what's best for us. Look, we're better off with, that, with less money in our pockets. That's right. It makes, I mean, us, it makes us dangerous. Imagine what silly things we'd spend our money on if we didn't have them to take it off us. 
Doge coins and other religious yeah. nonsense. Mm. We definitely would wouldn't be charitable with it. No, 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 no. Nah, it's better off with them. Mm. How's it going, mate? Uh, mate, we're recording a podcast. Hey, man. Oh, hey, hey, Matt. How's it going? Good, mate. Good. What are you up to? I uh, interrupted your podcast recording just then. No, that's fine, mate. You're now internet famous. So much potential in what you were talking about as well with like doing the uh, the audio stuff in Telegram. Yeah. So like just like just answering stuff directly or just little stuff. stuff. Yeah, like this is what I've been looking at today. So or, like, true, man. Yeah, like direct engagement. I think that's... Direct engagement. Direct engagement. Wow. In a world <laughs> where people engage indirectly. One man <laughs> will engage in direct engagement. In indirect engagements. <laughs> I wonder if you can be indirectly engaged to someone. Oh, yeah. Is that like an arranged marriage? Maybe. Maybe an arranged marriage that you don't know about. Surprise Surprise engagement. Yeah. I haven't had one of those before. No, neither have I. If you've had a surprised engagement, uh, do get in touch with the FOMO show. (laughs) I'd love to hear from you.